I am trying to get my mind around the fact that this is Book Arts Press Rare Book School Lecture Number 515. How I've been to all but two of them. How knowledgeable I must be. <laughs> and expect to be uh, even more so by the end of the evening. Our speaker tonight is Stephen Innes, who is the brand new librarian of the Folger Shakespeare Library. There's a number of people in the audience have very good reason to know since they work at the Folger Shakespeare Library. It's a pleasure to have them here this week and Stephen here tonight. Thank you, Terry. I should say first that the title of my talk, Exit Pursued by a Bear, is not a reference to Terry's upcoming retirement. <laughs> and I hope it will become clearer what it is a reference to as I go on. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I want to thank Terry for his kind invitation. I want to thank, uh, I want to add, it's a special pleasure to have Nicholas Barker with us tonight. To add to uh, Terry's chronology, which he began last evening, I first attended Rare Book School in 1994 to attend Nicholas's class, Managing the Past. And in one way or another, I've been trying to manage the past ever since. When Terry invited me to speak to you this evening, he helpfully suggested that I keep notes on my first six months as Eric Weinman, a librarian at the Folger Shakespeare Library and that I share something of those reflections. So these remarks will be unabashedly autobiographical, but I hope of wider relevance to all of us who care about books and about libraries. For the past 16 years, I held a variety of positions at Emory University, most recently as director of special collections. And during that time, I had the pleasure of working with a remarkable group of colleagues to acquire some of the most important literary archives to come on the market, including the papers of the late poet laureate of Britain, Ted Hughes, those of Nobel laureate Seamus Heaney, and the archive of Salman Rushdie. So as you've already noted, my move from Emory to the Folger Shakespeare Library was not only a move from a university of special collections to an independent research library, it was also a form of time travel a move from the 20th and 21st century to the 16th, from manuscripts to rare books, from a library where authors' archives are measured in linear feet to a library where the, where the key author famously left behind no manuscripts whatsoever. It was a move from modern to early modern, from mid-morning coffee breaks to afternoon tea, from LC to STC, and a place where my new colleagues seem under the delusion that SAA stands for Shakespeare Association of America. <laughs> when I arrived in D.C. this past winter, the Folger Theater was performing Shakespeare's A Winner's Tale, a play all about jealousy, betrayal, and vengeance. Not a play about academic life, but a play about renewal and the restoration <laughs> of proper relationships. The play contains one of Shakespeare's most famous and, I would add, amusing stage directions. Antigonus has been instructed to take the king's child 
who the king believes to have been conceived by a rival, to take the child to the sea coast of Bohemia and abandon it there. Never mind that Bohemia has no sea coast. <laughs> the poor Antigonus is racked by conflicting emotions. Abandon the child in that wilderness or defy the king's clear instructions and save the infant. At the moment of decision, just as he has decided he must do the right thing, Shakespeare interrupts these good intentions with the stage direction exit pursued by a bear. <laughs> Poor Antigonus flees the stage to appear no more. Arriving at the Folger in the midst of the worst bear market since the Great Depression, I have to confess the play seemed a particularly apt welcome, except in my case I entered pursued by that bear. But these circumstances are not, of course, unique to the Folger. All of us, I trust, have seen our libraries and our universities' endowments shrink, matched only by the equally precipitous drop in our personal retirement accounts. First, among the things I would note about my arrival at the Folger is that my very first meeting with my new colleagues was to share the news that the library's endowment was expected to lose close to a third of its value. While we are still learning just what such a drop means, I have to say the library has proven to be remarkably resilient. There is no malaise, no obvious signs of discouragement among my new colleagues. Flat is the new up, one helpfully suggested, <laughs> and one of our catalogers suggested a victory garden on the front lawn of the library. And while she said it in jest, there is something to this historical reference. We have, in fact, been here before. Henry and Emily Folger acquired the property the library sits on one block from the nation's capital in the 19-teens and 20s. The cornerstone for the new Folger Shakespeare Library was laid in 1930, just a few short months after the stock market collapse of Black Tuesday. Like poor Antigonus, Henry Folger left the stage abruptly at this point. In his case, he dropped dead from heart failure two weeks after the cornerstone was laid. The library opened without him in 1932 with President Herbert Hoover in attendance. But for all the shakiness of that start, the years of the Great Depression proved to be a period of remarkable growth and expansion. And as an aside, I would say I note that the Alderman Library was itself built with a form of stimulus money, I believe, w an infusion of WPA funding in 1936. For the Folger, one of the most significant developments came the following year, in 37, when the library acquired in one swoop 11,000 ESTC books dating from 1475 to 1640. The acquisition of the Harmsworth Collection for an average of five pounds apiece, expanded the Folger Library's collection <laughs> beyond the narrow world of Shakespeareana and laid the groundwork for the growth of this library into one of the leading research libraries anywhere for the study of early modern England. We know, I hope, that one measures the value of a library not by the size of its endowment, but by the depth and breadth of its collection. Generations of librarians curators, rare book dealers, and philanthropically inclined collectors have built the Folger collection by careful decision-making and, truth be told, sometimes by chance and lucky accident. 
These collections represent the intellectual capital of the library. They hold enormous potential for new insight and discovery today, tomorrow, and for many years to come. When a well-intentioned visitor asked what would become of the Folger Shakespeare Library if we learned tomorrow that Shakespeare did not write Shakespeare's plays, <laughs> the librarian at the time, one of my predecessors, replied that the Folger held equally strong collections of Ben Johnson, Christopher Marlowe, Francis Bacon, the Earl of Southampton, and Sir Walter Raleigh, among other sometimes claimants. While we all wish for stronger endowments, this is the kind of diversification that matters most. Diversification that broadens and deepens the research value of a collection. Those things, to use Terry's reference last evening, those things that we can hold and those things that we can continue to learn from. One hears library administrators, and I say this with chagrin since I am now one, one hears library administrators say that in a day when libraries may subscribe to vast databases of content, that the size of the collection does not matter. That ARL's persistent insistence on volume counts and its ranking of research libraries is a naive holdover from another error. Whenever one hears that word content, in this context, you can be sure that, no, that none of that content has actually been read. I don't believe you'll hear that from anyone actually engaged in, in research. The development of the research collection, adding strength to strength, a book at a time, remains one of our most important activities. And while our acquisitions funds are not as large as they were a year ago, catalogs still arrive daily they are checked against our holdings, and important books and manuscripts continue to come in from the auction rooms of New York and London and from provincial bookshops across Britain. In addition, my colleagues and I are even hopeful about the opportunities that these times make possible. Antigonus, we learn later in A Winter's Tale, was eaten by the bear, fortunately off stage. <laughs> but next to death, the most common event in determining when rare books and manuscripts transfer from one owner to another is, of course, a sudden downturn in financial fortunes. As our dealer friends will tell us, these are times when entire collections and important books change hands. Among our own recent acquisitions is a 1660 map of London by the Bohemian engraver Winslow Holler. The map includes street-by-street -street depiction of each house or structure in London just before the Great Fire. It covers the area from St. Martin's Lane to Chancery Lane, just adjacent to the present-day London Stock Exchange in the nearby city and the headquarters of the Bank of England. Holler contemplated no such institutions in the London he mapped, and because of his map, I would suggest, we may contemplate London without them once again. Libraries, in other words, can take a long view, even a very long view. In its 75-year history, the Folger has been threatened by any number of bears. My predecessors seem to have been preoccupied with the very survival of the library. But their fears were, to judge from early meeting minutes I've read, more to do with fiery apocalypse rather than the slow drip of financial decline. Fortunately for us, the Folger Library did not exist when Washington was burned in the War of 1812, 
But from the time of its founding, Folger librarians have lived with the idea of cataclysmic destruction. Those of you who have visited know that its rare book stacks are underground in vault space beneath the building. During World War II, when there were real fears that D.C. may come under attack, the then librarian noted that if an enemy of learning had dropped a bomb on the Folger Library on Friday, December 28th, he was quite specific, he would have very nearly wiped out literary scholarship in America. This fearful soul went on in a later entry to record the library's emergency plans this way. If Washington is bombed, the staff plan to take refuge among the Shakespeare's and sweat it out in highbrow comfort. <laughs> Years later, in the 1950s, when this threat had shifted from conventional bombs to nuclear destruction, this same librarian, by now more resigned to his likely fate, wrote, some denizens of Capitol Hill cry in their beards that atomic destruction is imminent, and civilization is hardly worth salvaging, much less studying. We take no such gloomy view, he wrote defiantly. If the big crash comes, it will find us here, going about our business, which is to make the best possible institute for the study of the history of the 16th and 17th centuries, the period which saw the origins of the modern world. Nor do we see much virtue, he continued, in fleeing to some godforsaken Patagonian refuge. The really safe spots are going to be crowded with people we won't like. We'll just stay here and keep our air conditioning going as long as it will run and read some Renaissance sermons on innate depravity, a theme which somehow cheers us. My first day at the Folger, I was shown through those underground rare book stacks where, sure enough, water purification tablets and other vintage emergency survival supplies still sit with instructions since updated after 9-11 for the library's latest shelter-in-place disaster plan. I saw no such sermons on innate depravity, but I know they are surely not far away. To those Cold War fears, we can now add swine flu, worldwide pandemic, and of course our per profession's perennial fear, the decline of reading, the death of the book, and the end of the libraries as we know them. But back to my notes on my first six months. Frankly, my colleagues and I have been much too busy running a library to worry about those bears, both real and imagined. Let me share with you some of what's underway at the Folger. Yes, we are concerned about our, our reduced acquisitions budget, but rare books and manuscripts continue to arrive, each one with its own fascinating story. Among those recent arrivals, a 17th century pamphlet that aimed, quote, to advance trade, employ the poor, diminish interest, improve public revenues, all by allowing debt bonds to be traded as a form of currency. Another, a humble proposal to cause bankrupts to make better and more speedier payment of their debts. This one published in London in 1679. So you see, we are keeping current. <laughs> Both of these were among the books offered for adoption at our annual acquisitions night this past March. 
Well, one guest that evening, a devoted book collector, remarked what a dispiriting sight it was to see so many rare books disappearing into an institutional collection. His was clearly a minority point of view. Other friends, without any inducement other than an infectious enthusiasm for the library and a little wine, wrote out checks for close to $30,000 that evening. This annual event is the only fundraising appeal of the year where every cent of every dollar goes towards direct support of the library's collection without overhead of any kind. That kind of support is gratifying as are the numerous other acts of generosity, large and small, directed toward the library throughout the year. Not long after my arrival at the Folger, I received a visit from a retired Foreign Service officer who had been, sta been stationed in Romania for most of his career. He came to give us a collection of foreign language Shakespeare editions in Romanian in honor of a teacher that had meant a great deal to him more than 50 years ago. As you know well, we are keepers not only of books, but also of these richly layered stories of memory itself. A considerable amount of time over the last six months has been spent discussing and setting cataloging priorities, which I'll add as a useful way of getting to know one's new colleagues. As we reach the midpoint of a three-year project to catalog all of the Folgers' manuscripts, we are turning our attention to other ways we can increase access to the library's holdings. And I just add, don't believe those colleagues who speak of hidden collections. I know of no librarian doing anything of the kind. In the 20s, when professors would write to Mr. Folger asking to see this or that rare work, which he was known to have acquired, Mr. Folger had to turn them away simply because his collection was so large it was scattered among 20 different bank vaults. It was impossible for him to locate specific books because he himself had no idea where they were. Perhaps that was a hidden collection, but he was also planning a library that would properly catalog and make available this collection, and that important work continues to this day, supported by Mr. Folger's own original endowment and the investment of NEH, Mellon, and many other private cultural organizations. Since its opening, the Folger Library has share, shared its collection widely, both on-site and through a number of, of initiatives to share collections with remote researchers. As early as 1937, the library published a facsimile edition of the unique copy of Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, which Mr. Folger had purchased for $10,000 in 1904. This, the earliest of Shakespeare's known quartos, is a sole survivor, the only known copy. We have been producing facsimiles in one form or another ever since. Most, recent, most recently, a handsome facsimile of the Trevelyan miscellany, which I have to add, Nicholas Barker recently reviewed very favorably in The Book Collector. The title page of the 1623 first folio, of which the Folger has 79, reminds us that all Shakespeare's plays are in one way or another copies. Mr. William Shakespeare's comedies, histories, tragedies, published according to the true original copies, the title page reads. Editors have been making claims for the true copy ever since. This quest to 
took a detour this past April when the Shakespeare scholar Stanley Wells momentarily shifted his attention from establishing the true text to establishing the true likeness of the author himself. This past April, the Shakespeare Trust in Stratford opened an exhibition Shakespeare found and put on display a 17th century portrait, which Wells claims is a life portrait of the elusive author himself. The claims made newspaper headlines for several days, which in our news cycle is an eternity. And the Folger was drawn into the frenzy because Wells based part of his claim on a companion portrait hanging in the Folger Library's reading room. Unfortunately for Wells, we've long identified the Folger portrait as most likely being of Sir Thomas Overbury, a contemporary of Shakespeare's and a minor poet who was later poisoned by his, his enemies while imprisoned in the Tower of London. Nevertheless, the groundswell of interest in Shakespeare portraiture raises intriguing questions about evidence, about our ability to reconstruct that now distant past, and about the forms that, that scholarly desire can take. Confining ourselves to the world we know best, we've engaged in the publication of numerous facsimiles over the years. We've undertaken, as your institutions have as well, large microfilming projects, most notably the Folger's collection of actors' prompt books, and a large project to film the Folger collection of Elizabethan receipt books. But today, of course, those efforts are largely digital. Soon after my arrival, we passed for us an important milestone when, when we reached 25,000 images in the library's growing digital image database including images of all pre-1641 Shakespeare quartos in the library's collection. All indications are this digital resource is going to be heavily used, especially by distant researchers who can search for images online without having to fly into Washington National, navigate airport security checkpoints, and our own only slightly less rigorous screening. <laughs> Another key initiative of the last six months has been an assessment of our staff training needs, something that I should say Rare Book School plays an important part in. Suffice it to say, you will see here a series of Folger librarians and staff making their way to Charlottesville in the coming months and years, including a large number of our junior staff who will benefit greatly from this training in Rare Books and Bibliography. No less important, however, are our ongoing efforts to teach the value of the collections we hold to a broader public. These efforts take numerous forms. The Folger offers an undergraduate seminar in the history of the book, and one of our curators, also a Rare Book School faculty member, teaches a Folger Institute seminar on English paleography. But all of us have a responsibility as well to interpret our collections for a broader, intellectually curious public. Our volunteer docents, a deeply loyal group, conduct regular tours, as do numerous staff. I don't believe a day goes by with one, one or more taking place. This past April, on Shakespeare's birthday, we set up a printing press outside for visitors to see. All went well until the afternoon sun began to turn our ink runny, <laughs> just illustrating that these efforts can be teaching moments for us, too. The library's exhibitions program is another way we share the story of the Folger Collection, 
and the Folger, I'm proud to say, has a long history of high-quality programming of that kind. From my point of view, there has never been a greater level of interest in the cultural work of our libraries, and I have to wonder if this interest doesn't have something to do with our culture's otherwise widespread abandonment of reflection and study. We will continue to seek ways to teach and inform work that I know many of you are engaged in as well. Among the librarians' less clearly defined responsibilities is the responsibility to leave this library stronger than when I found it. Certainly funding is part of that, but it also includes wise appointments, and we will one day make appointments again, and the recruitment of strong volunteer board and friends. We need on our board people who share the values of the research library, people who share a commitment to the mission, and people eager to represent the library in their own spheres of influence, whatever they may be, to advance the important work that libraries alone perform. Some significant part of my first six months has been spent in the pleasant task of meeting these new friends who extend as well, I would add, to collectors, dealers, foundation staff, and others who want us to succeed. When I took up the librarian position at the Folger, I knew the library, largely by reputation, as one of the finest rare book collections in the country. What I now know, six months later, is that it is also an equally special community of fine people. I'd like to close these reflections on the past six months with a story. For the last 10 years, an organ has been playing continuously in the ruins of the medieval church of St. Bichardi in the German town of Halberstadt. Perhaps you read of it. At the current pace, the full piece will not be finished for another 630 years in the year 2640. This is equivalent to a continuous piece of music being played from the 14th century to the present, from the time of Chaucer to Zadie Smith. The musical composition is by the late American composer John Cage and is entitled Organ II ASLSP, which stands for As Slow As Possible. <laughs> the score on which it is written stretches over four meters in length, but what gives the performance its remarkable duration is the fact that a single note may last for a year or more. Ten years into the performance, and we are only on the sixth note. This past July, according to newspaper accounts, more than a thousand people crowded into the church ruin to hear notes change. <laughs> when there is no note change, the organ sounds a continuous tone, night and day, which neighbors have said sounds something like an air raid siren. A journalist covering this concert observed that the performance, in his words, challenges our concept of slowness. <laughs> what Cage has done is take a work of art, a performance piece, typically bound by time, that has no duration beyond the length of its performance, and tried to prolong it, tried to give it something approaching permanence. If you will indulge my own imaginative flight for a moment, 
I would insist that our libraries, too, are time-defined performance spaces. Just as Cage's original score lies latent until the bellows fill and air is forced through those pipes, so, too, our libraries are institutions of latent possibility. Librarians perform something daily as bold and outrageous as Cage's 600-year-long performance. We hold in our collections the time-bound thoughts of one time and place, and we hold them to be rediscovered, replayed, experienced even again. Our readers, of course, are the performers who complete this work, the performers for whom we have built these structures and systems called libraries. It is their intelligence and their creativity that animates the performance space, whether it be a 15th century church ruin or something not too far away, a library reading room. What more can I tell you about my first six months as librarian? The library is full, more full than I ever imagined. All the tables in the old reading room are occupied. Small bands of tourists who have tired of the capital and decided to do a little Shakespeare crowd the halls. In the tea room, fellows argue about the overuse of a semicolon, the textual implications of a dash, and Shakespeare's true text. Upstairs, Frank Mowry is painstakingly recovering 15th century manuscript waste from early bindings. Downstairs, scanners cast a glow over the digital imaging lab. Rumor has it there's a romantic liaison going on in Folger housing. <laughs> Our building engineer is on a ladder looking for the source of a leak over the new reading room. And the new librarian, the new librarian reads annual reports from 50 years ago, puts bears out of his mind, and marvels at how little libraries really change. Thank you very much. <laughs>